you would take out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 18. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts that we're calling Jesus Acts, the way that Jesus began acting in the world through the cross and resurrection and ascension. He continues to act through the church from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And we've been moving through this book. Uh, we're in chapter 18 today. We'll look at verses 1 through 17. Uh, but to begin our time together, I will read verses 9 and 10. And as we embark on summer, uh, maybe some things in the service today gave you the impression like we're getting to the end of something, and we are not. We're not commissioning everyone to be gone all summer, which some of you may already be making plans for that. We need folks here all summer serving in a part of what God is doing here. Our BFGs are going to continue to meet. We're going to take more mission trips. Uh, we, we, we've got Vacation Bible School that's coming up. We're going to be doing different things to this building all summer. So don't think you were commissioned today. Only a few were commissioned. We need you here and we need you serving uh, this summer. I truly believe one of the key distinctions in the life of Christians these days isn't how we vote or what we put on Facebook or how we identify ourselves in those ways. One of the key cultural distinctions of Christians right now and going forward in our culture will be their commitment to their local church. And are they willing to be committed to the gospel there instead of other things that could distract them? And this summer will test us in those ways. I absolutely love summer. Uh, it was 80 degrees today, and I didn't want to come inside. I just, I love it. I, I love the sun. Uh, I'm, everybody's on me about sunscreen. I just want to get as much of the sun on and in this body as possible. Uh, and I know what it's like uh, to, to need rest and refreshment. And you need that this summer. But remember what God is doing here. Stay connected. Uh, we want to continue to move forward with the momentum that he's giving us as a church. So uh, if you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word from Acts chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 9 through 10 to begin our time together. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Oh God, we thank you for that glorious promise that even reverberates here in these moments, as we think about our own city, you have many in this city who need the gospel. You have many in this city who, in the days ahead, will hear and believe the gospel. And God, I pray that you would use us who are those who are determined because you are with us. We will not be silent. We will go on speaking. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm tired. I have broken, disjointed, and deformed bones. I can't walk straight up. I have infections forming in the scars on my back. I'm worried sick about my friends suffering in other cities. I'm anxious 
I'm stressed. I am depressed. I am worn out from all of this rejection. I'm scared. I don't want to keep preaching. I'm not sure I can go on. Now, it should encourage us that these would have been words written by the Apostle Paul in his journal as he was having Bible study one morning in the city of Corinth. But by the time this man had gotten to the city of Corinth, that's exactly how he felt. That's exactly who he was. He was worn out. He was depressed. He was stressed. He did not want to go on. Paul was a man who had been beaten and jailed in the city of Philippi. And then he was run out of the city of Philippi to Thessalonica, where when he began to preach the gospel there, the city leaders pulled out the church. They pulled out the church leaders, a man named Jason, into the streets, and they began to flog the Christians to the extent that Paul had to leave that city. And then he entered the the little sort of side town of Berea and he began to have Bible study with the Bereans. And as soon as they started believing the gospel there, these people who were searching the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true, all of a sudden the, the leaders from Thessalonica showed up and ran him out of that town. And he showed up in Athens alone. His ministry partners, they were back in Thessalonica helping this young church endure suffering and persecution. And Paul stands and he preaches before the philosophers there and they call him a seed picker. Just sort of a redneck philosopher who doesn't know what he's talking about. He's putting these things together and he sounds silly. And he walks into the city of Corinth from Athens. And he is downcast. And he is worn out. He wasn't scheduling this trip through tripadvisor.com. It was persecution. Persecution that had led him from city to city to city to village to village to village to town to town to town. It was persecution that had led him to the city of Corinth. And we find in verse 1 of chapter 18, after this, after this, after all of this persecution, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. At this point, he walked 60 miles from Athens to Corinth. Now imagine that. Beatings, bruises. He's walking 60 miles from Athens to Corinth. At this point, many believe between the years 59 AD and 52 AD, listen to this, Paul had walked 2,000 miles. Now I read that and said that's impossible. But if you look at how it all worked out, they believe he walked 2,000 miles, always walking. And he'd travel 1,000 miles by sea. This would have been like walking from Raleigh, North Carolina to Denver, Colorado. Walking for the sake of the gospel. And I read that this week and thought, and he's 50. (laughs) At this point, he's 50. I walk up the stairs in my house now and have to catch my breath and I'm sore the next day. (laughs) 
Here's a man 50 walking thousands of miles with bruises, lacerations. They believe at this point in his life, he, from all of the beatings, and, and, and his body was so tired and worn out that he had to walk hunched over, that he couldn't even walk straight up. And yet he's walking for the sake of the gospel. And he gets to Athens, and this would have been a transition in his mind from, from Athens to Corinth. It would have been like getting on a plane in Boston, which is known to be somewhat intellectual, and, and flying to San Francisco. And all of a sudden you are in a different place, a different culture. Athens was this uh, cosmopolitan city at this time. It was multicultural. It was full of commerce. There were two ports in the city that, that connected to two major waterways. And so it was a place of great business and commerce. It was easy, easily accessible. But Corinth was also a place of great, great, great corruption. They worshiped the goddess of love in Corinth. And she had a temple that was full of thousands, thousands of sex slaves. And she had, a, she had priestess that went out into the city of Corinth and invited worshipers in. And if you committed immorality with her slaves, that was considered an act of worship to the goddess of love. And that was at the heart and center of this city. To commit sexual sin at this time was uh, known as Corinthianizing. That's how corrupt the city was. And imagine all of this walking, all of this suffering, all of this difficulty. And Paul walks into this corrupt city and he's alone. He's alone. He's by himself. He writes to the Corinthians and says, When I came to you, I came in fear and trembling. He's alone and he's depressed and he doesn't want to go on. He doesn't know how he's going to do it. At this point in ministry, Paul is like an abused child. He's flinching. Yes, Paul, the one who wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, he is distressed. He, he is worn out and he does not want to go on. And if we were there, we would say, Paul, just take some time off. Take some time. You need some time off. You've done enough. By the way, Paul, you could stop now, retire, spend some time at the beach. I mean, get married, have, have some kids, grandkids. You need that. And Paul says, no. I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. Even in depression and stress and anxiety and frustration and difficulty and physical, physical inability to walk and go on, he says, no, the gospel is my priority. And he writes to the Corinthians and says, I determined not to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. I could have stopped. I could have given up. But I didn't for the sake of the gospel. And, and, and what, I, what we see here with Paul is what, what we try to teach our kids in our, our home. And it's this. Talent and considering yourself special is overrated if you want to accomplish anything in life. Talent, skill, it's overrated. What you need to be successful and move forward in life is grit. 
It's what we call grit in our home. Don't think naturally gifted to be successful or you will be successful at nothing. Without grit, talent is useless. With grit, you can learn most skills. Some of you know that. You're getting degrees right now. And you would say, this degree has very little to do with me being inherently smart. It's just, I gave up a lot to get this degree. I, I studied my tail off. And I wrote, and I wrote, and I read. I had grit to accomplish this. And that's the way most things in life are. And I bring that up for this reason. God used this amazingly skillful man. Paul was skillful at speaking. Paul had great talent. He gr had great intellectual skill. He knew the world and he knew the Bible better than anyone. Better than anyone. And yet it was his tenacious grit that God used the most. Here we find a man who back in Lystra, if you remember, he was stoned outside of the city with rocks bouncing off of his head. They thought he was dead. When he wakes up, what does he do? He goes back into the city and preaches the gospel. That's not talent. A lot of talented preachers wouldn't do that. Paul has grit. And it's what... God uses the most. I'm not talking about just some willful dig deep within yourself grit. I'm talking about what we call around here gospel grit. To know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. That's where that grit comes from. That's what Paul would preach to the Corinthians. Nothing but Christ and Him crucified. He is honed in on that truth. He is honed in on that reality. Jesus Christ was crucified for me. I will bear in my body the marks that, that display His suffering for me. Christ was crucified for me. My sins are forgiven. He was raised from the dead. I can't see death in Him. My body will stop functioning one day, but I will go to be present with the Lord. And it undergirds everything He does. The Holy Spirit is moving. We can't be stopped. It's gospel grit that drives Paul to suffer in such a way. And to move on in such a way. And, and I want to say to you today, if you want to do something for Jesus, it's not going to be because you're special. That you just inherently have some skills and talents. Those things have to be honed in for Jesus. But they will not be honed in for Jesus if you don't have grit. If you don't love the gospel more than anything else. If you're not trusting and relying on the Spirit more than anything else. If you're not in the Word and God, God is shaping you and you have grit in the Word and in the Spirit and in the context of the church. If you have grit to do that, you will have grit to do amazing things for Jesus. You will be those who say, my exhaustion to spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel is just a testimony of how much the gospel is worth. And so I want to say to you, have grit Imagine 250 people here today, that number may be a little low today, who just say, I love Jesus and I'm going to be gritty for Jesus. Imagine what we could do in the world. Stop waiting on some lightning bolt from heaven to, to reveal to you some specialness about, no, just be gritty for Jesus. Jesus.
Start serving Jesus and see what he does with your life. That's what we see with Apostle Paul here. And then verse 2, as he gets into the city, this depressed, discouraged, stressed out prophet of God, he needs some friends. And that's exactly what God provides for him. He found a Jew named Aquila and a, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, Priscilla because Claudius had commanded the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Isn't God good to Paul? He's alone. He's scared. And he provides for him friends. Priscilla and Aquila, they were expelled from Rome. It, it seems to be over a controversy about Jesus being the Messiah. They have come to believe the gospel before they meet Paul. Now this couple was always mentioned together as a team. They, they were a team. The, the, this husband and wife. And Priscilla usually is the one mentioned first in this team. And we think about the Bible being this male-dominated uh, book or story. And yet, over and over, we mentioned in Acts where the women are heroes of the story. And here Priscilla takes center stage in so many ways, even when they meet a man named Apollos. We see God used her gifts. This couple is with him in three significant moves from this point on in Paul's ministry. And they provide refreshment and encouragement from him. And we see Paul joins them in tent making. This is something Paul had been taught to do. And so often Paul uses this skill, this vocation to support his ministry. There were at times where he used offerings from the church and that's all he did was preach the gospel. But we see here he uses this skill in Corinth to support his ministry of preaching the gospel. Now notice something that John Martin so eloquently talked about earlier in our service how vocational ministry is mission work. You don't separate those two. And we see that very clearly with this couple. They weren't vocational pastors. They weren't called missionaries. They often had church in their home. They served the poor and needy. They invited Christians who were suffering from persecution in their home so often. And they did it through tent making. They were mobile for Jesus. They could take this business wherever they wanted and they used it for the sake of the gospel so often to support the Apostle Paul. Your job, the skills you have, the careers that you have, they're not just to be used for mission. They are mission. It's the way you are serving Jesus. And you're pouring that into the life of the church. You're pouring that in to the mission of the gospel around the world. And so some of you need to say, how, how am I a tent maker for Jesus? How am I using my skills? How am I using these things for the sake of the gospel? Some of you college students need to know this. Missions in the 21st century, is turning into mission teams going around the world and supporting church planners just by getting jobs. Some folks aren't even going to seminary to do that. They're taking their skills as baristas to Turkey. And they're serving in coffee shops and helping church planners there. 
There are accountants all around the world leaving our churches to go around the world just to live in other countries for the sake of the gospel. How can I do that for Jesus? Where would you have me go in that way for Jesus? And some of you need to stay here and be tent makers for Jesus. Some of you need to stay here and use your occupation for Jesus. I, I read this week, and I don't even know if it's true, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I think it was in the Richmond Register that Richmond was in the top 100 cities in America as one of the best places to start a business. And there were only four other cities in Kentucky. I doubted that when I read it. I was like, is that true? But I'm going to use it on Sunday anyway to <laughs> prove my point. That you may need to start a business here for Jesus. You may need to say, I'm going to plant my family in this city for Jesus and fold all that I do and all that I have into the gospel. And we see another point here that is made. This couple became so close friends with Paul, they followed him on his mission. They followed him as he went to Rome, as he went to Ephesus. They followed him to support his mission. And he would say at the end of his life, I don't have anyone else like these folks. They risk their heads for me, their lives for me. In city after city after city, they suffered for me. And he loves them. I just want to make another point here. That is how you develop friendships, is your own mission together. You think about soldiers, you think about teams. We say that often around here. You want close friendships Link arms with other people for the most glorious task in the universe, and that's getting the gospel out, and you will find close friends. It will happen. Don't aim at making friends. Aim at being on mission for Jesus, and you will develop friendships. That's exactly what happens with the Apostle Paul and this couple here. But notice verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. The word here is strongly reason. He argued in the synagogue. He showed up every week trying to persuade them. But notice verse 5. God is, again, is gracious to him. When Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. Now, what we think is they brought an offering to him from Philippi and other churches where he could go on just preaching the gospel, being occupied with the gospel, testifying to the Jews that Christ, the Christ was Jesus. Jesus was the Christ. And when he when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent, for now I will go to the Gentiles. It seems to be in this city, Paul stands up like an Ezekiel-like prophet who is preaching to the Jews. They reject the message, and he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. Notice verse 7. And he left there and went into the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. This was a Gentile who in some ways was seeking God through Judaism. And so Paul leaves the synagogue. And where does he go? His house was next door to the synagogue. Paul, okay, my synagogue ministry's over. Where, am I gonna, where, where are we going to start this thing? Oh, next door. And he goes to this man's home who is seeking the Lord. And notice what happens when he goes next door. 
Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. The guy who he was just probably persuading with in the synagogue to, to believe the gospel. And now he goes next door to a house and you have two believers who have believed the gospel. And then notice what happens. Together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And so it's almost like he hits a roadblock in the synagogue. And so he moves to the house and God begins to bless the efforts. Someone opens up their home for the sake of the gospel. And these, these men became leaders in the church. And we see this theme again in Acts. And it's not just an aside note. Where homes are used strategically for the sake of the witness from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. We, we see again, the, the gospel settles in a home and then it begins to multiply and reproduce in the city. We saw that with Lydia, the jailer, Priscilla and Aquila. And now we see this with Titius. The, the gospel settles in his home and the gospel begins to grow. And, and the point for us is we will not be an effective church we will not have an effective gospel witness in this city until we see this. We will not be effective at reaching Richmond until we move from just being welcoming to hospitable. And those are two different things. We can be welcoming on a Sunday morning. We can have signage and we can tell people where to go. and We can have smiles on our faces and we can shake hands and we can be nicey nice on Sunday morning and then be jerks the rest of the week. We can train ourselves to do that. But to be a hospitable church, it means we're not just opening up our building, we're opening up our homes. The gospel opens up our hearts and we open up our lives and to open up your life for Jesus, you have to open up your homes if you have them. Or, or whatever other context you have that would say, this is opening up my life in a very intimate way to others so they might see the gospel. Now, I'm not talking about dinner parties. Now, some of you think being hospitable and using your home for the sake of the gospel, and you think cookouts, you think Super Bowl parties, you think watching UK basketball, and you think dinner parties where everybody sits around and everything's clean and everything's nice. You should do that. I would encourage you to do that. But I'm talking about opening up your home when you have dirty laundry on the couch and your kids are a mess. And someone says, I'm coming over because I need to talk. And you grab that laundry and you shove it in a closet. And you grab those kids, don't shove them in a closet. <laughs> but you lock, don't lock them. I'm trying to be very careful. Put them somewhere else. <laughs> Tell them to be quiet. And people know they can just come in your home whenever. Now that scares some of you and you don't like that. But if your life is opened by the gospel, your home will be open with the gospel. My wife rebuked me very pointedly this week about this. I said, you know what? These kids are getting older and we just got to get them out of here. Get them married, jobs. It's going to be tricky with some of them. But... And then you know what we're going to do? I've decided we're buying an RV. 
Cousin Eddie will just travel around and see the grandkids. We'll sell this house, use this money for retirement. And she said, no way. She said, we have to have a house. Why do we have to have a house? We, we can't have people over if we don't have a house. And, and it dawned on me, she was thinking more Christian than I was in that moment. That happens a lot, believe it or not. But, but you can't be effective in your gospel witness if you're not throwing your, your doors open to say, come see how Jesus has changed my life, my family, your dorm room, your apartment, however you got to do that, your car, you don't have a place to live, just invite people to sit in your car with you and talk. Just have lunch with people. Open up your life for the sake of the gospel. You move from just being welcoming to hospitable, and, and that's the key. My life is opened for the sake of the gospel. And it's important in this generation. You realize we have the generations behind us, teenagers right now, some college students, they think about fellowship only through a device. And their way of hanging out is, is not going to parties on Friday and Saturday night, not going to ball games, but going home and being on some device, some computer, some phone, some video game, and talking to their friends across town. And I say, don't y'all like to like hang out and do that? And here's the way that, that young adults game now, gaming, video games. Here's the way that's done. Hey, do you want to play Fortnite Friday night? Yeah. Okay, well, I'll bring my TV and my PlayStation to your house. And they sit in the same room with TVs and different PlayStations playing the same game. They don't even talk to each other. It's so weird. It's so strange. Like, don't you... But here's the problem. They really don't know how to interact beyond that with one another. They don't know how to talk. They, they, they don't know how to fellowship. And that's not me just calling for some 1950s traditional family values where you sit around the table. This is me saying that's going to be detrimental for the gospel one day. Because the gospel isn't shared... The gospel isn't effectively shared through a device. It's through opening up your homes and come on in and see how messy my house is and how messy my life is and how crazy my kids are. Come on in and see it all. And I still love Jesus. And Jesus is changing all of this. Come on in and see it. And let's talk. Let's interact. Let's talk about how Jesus is changing our life. Let's get together and do this. This is what happens in the book of Acts, and it's going to require fighting back this culture of isolation that's all around us. It may mean for some of us that we can't be at the ballpark every night of the week. It may mean that, Haskins. We may have to do that. But if you're always gone, you can't open up your home. It may mean that you just take a night of the week and say, every week we are opening up our home. I don't care how messy it is. I don't care how tired we are. We're just going to order pizza and have people over and talk about Jesus. It's just that simple. And that is an effective way for the gospel to move forward in the life of a church, in the life of the city, is inviting folks in your home. I can't tell if some of you are hot or you just think I'm crazy right now. <laughs> but read the book of Acts and you'll see it everywhere. So Paul here, even with all of this, is tired, exhausted. And we think, well, people are believing the gospel, Paul. He still needs encouragement. Verse 9, 
The Lord said one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there six months teaching the word of God to them. Isn't God good to Paul? We, we think about Paul as this superhuman superhero apostle who's not scared of anything, who never gets tired. He's just like a robot. And yet at this point, he's tired and he's exhausted and God knows it. And many believe at this point is when he would write in Corinthians about the thorn in his flesh, that it was just stress and depression and anxiety from ministry. I don't know if I can go on. And God says, no, Keep preaching. Jesus says, I am with you. No one will harm you. And that's when Paul responds in Corinthians, his grace is sufficient. And, and it seems as though Paul takes a vow here and says, no, I'm going to stay in this city for the sake of the gospel. And God gives him freedom to preach the gospel in the city with this promise. No one's going to hurt you. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be controversy. But you will live, Paul, I'm going to protect you. And notice the key to the promise. I'm with you. Keep preaching. In the next few verses, we see this controversy erupts in the city. And Paul's probably imagining, oh my word, you said you would protect me. And he's called before the authorities and he's on trial. And the controversy is the Jews are trying to say Christianity, Christianity isn't a subset of Judaism. And this man is attacking our law. He's attacking our religion. And just before Galileo begins to, begins to uh, convict Paul, uh, Paul begins to stand up and open his mouth. And all of a sudden he is silent and instead of being able to defend himself and say, you're right, Christianity isn't a subset of Judaism. It's a fulfillment of Judaism as he's preached everywhere else. It's almost as if God shuts his mouth and he allows things to take its course. And it ends up with the ruler of the synagogue being beaten by the city, not Paul. And it's a picture of Paul fulfilling, God fulfilling his promise to Paul and it's almost like this year and a half of ministry that's left is, is somewhat peaceful for him. Somewhat. It's almost like God gives him a reprieve in ministry where he can disciple and preach and proclaim the gospel. He has the freedom to preach there. But, but we, we see another strategy that emerges in the book of Acts. And it's this emphasis on city. Notice what Jesus said to him. I have many in this city. I'm with you in this city. Notice Paul stays in the city for the sake of the gospel. So far we've seen him in the province of Galatia. He's preached the gospel in a Roman colony in Philippi. He's gone to Thessalonica, which was central for Gentile converts. But then he goes to Athens, which is a city. And now he's in Corinth, which is a city. And then he will go to Ephesus, which is a city. And his goal is always to get to Rome, which is a city for the sake of the gospel. Tim Keller compares Athens to Boston, Corinth to New York, Ephesus to L.A., and Rome to Washington, D.C., just to get our minds around the places Paul is going. Sometimes we think Paul is in these little villages. No, these are major cities. 
Corinth would have had probably close to 300,000 people there. And then many believe they had close to 500,000 slaves who just served the city. And this is massive hustle and bustle city. Paul is committed to staying in the cities. And, and we have to wrap our mind around that because many of us here today, we believe city is a bad thing. We think city and we think corruption, dark alleys, bars, bad people are in the city. Out of the city, it's peaceful, it's quiet. And that's the way we think. Biblically, Cities are central hubs for ministry. And by the way, you wouldn't be here today if Paul didn't reach cities. The impact that he had on cities for the sake of the gospel. I'm talking about massive movements. You talk about one man moving into the city and all of a sudden there is a citywide controversy over what he's speaking. Today, if a man like Paul entered Richmond and was preaching, we may not ever know about it. But the Spirit used him in cities to impact the world. In cities we see and we, we understand that in cities there is more of the image of God per square inch than any other place on the earth in the cities around the world. They also tend to have the least amount of churches per person. And it takes more churches in cities to reach people. But cities are sources of culture and influence. And we have to look at our city and go, how might God use us in this city? It doesn't even compare to Corinth. 32,000 people in Richmond. I mean, that's not 200,000. The, the scope of Richmond. I was talking to someone today about Madison County, 80,000 people. The, the number of college students that we have here, and we have 250 people seated before us who love Jesus and are full of grit. We should be able to reach the city for the sake of the gospel. And not just in some minimalistic, y'all come here, y'all come here. We're Ashland, we're Ashland. We want hundreds and hundreds of people here. No, we want you here to go. To go out into this city and around the world with, with jobs and with professions. Just think about Richmond. Think about education. Think about the folks here who are involved in education. And they are fine-tuning everyday hearts. They are impacting hearts every day. Teachers are here who will go out into the workforce, who will go around the world. If we harness that for Jesus, we are influencing and impacting, impacting the world in our city. Think about the thousands of college students that, that are two to three miles down the road all the time in the center of this city. And instead of whining and complaining when they come back in the fall, oh my gosh, it was so easy to get around the bypass and now these college students are back. <laughs> Why don't you just stop at that red light and say, you know what, I should have left 15 minutes early. And thank you, Lord, for what you brought to this city. Thank you for bringing me here. Thank you for bringing this here. Thank you for bringing these people here, created in the image of God, full of energy, ready for adventure, ready to take the world for the sake of the gospel. And we have the same promise here in this city that Paul had in Corinth. Jesus says to us in the Great Commission, Lo, I am with you. Lo, I am always with you. 
even to the end of the age, as you make disciples of all nations. We have the promise. We read Revelation 5, 9, and we see the nations, all people, tribes, tongues, and peoples, where are they gathered in what? A city called Jerusalem. We know the end of the story. Cities are impacted. Cities are impacted with the gospel that reach the ends of the earth, reach the nations and bring them back to a city. That's the end of the story. Why would we not get after it? We are immortal until Jesus is done with us. We are unstoppable until that story is over. And Jesus is with us to the very end. We can't lose. What would God do with 250, 300 people, just gritty gospel warriors here today, forming bonds of friendship on mission together, using jobs for the sake of the gospel, opening up our homes for the sake of the gospel, those he's promised he'll never leave us or forsake us, giving us the freedom to preach the gospel, gritty warriors who say, I know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And whatever it takes, I'm going to give my life over to that. Let's pray.